Nature Revisited, the podcast. My name is Stefan Van Norden. And on this episode, we are joined by Jared Rosenbaum, the author of the new book, Wild Plant Culture. Jared is a botanist, native plant grower, and ecological restoration practitioner who lives in New Jersey. He is also a founding partner of Wild Ridge Plants. When I first learned the work Jared was doing, ecological restoration on the East Coast, I knew I wanted to have him on the show. Most of the focus of restoration in this country is in the Midwest, but there is a growing awareness of its importance here in the eastern part of the country. And Jared is in the forefront of that. So I asked Jared if he would join me on Nature Revisited and talk about his wonderful book, Wild Plant Culture, and the work he is doing. But first, a word from our sponsor, Prairie Restorations, located in Princeton, Minnesota. Prairie Restorations is excited to sponsor today's episode of Nature Revisited. Founded in 1977 as one of the first native garden centers in the country, Prairie Restorations has grown and expanded the diversity of our native plants and services. Our mission is to produce and provide the most ecologically appropriate seeds, plants, products, and services to restore and manage native plant communities. Shop our online garden center and receive 10% off your order when you use promo code Nature Revisited. Be the change. Be a native gardener and help restore critical native habitat. Visit prairieresto.com to shop the highest quality native seeds and plants. That's prairieresto.com. Again, that's prairieresto.com. Now back to your show. Let's start at the beginning. Were you raised in New Jersey? And if so, how did that affect the direction that you have taken? That's a funny question because I didn't grow up in New Jersey. I grew up in New York City, pure 100% city kid, and I didn't know any of this stuff. So I know a lot of people who are friends and colleagues who are naturalists. They had this kind of profound childhood connection with nature in one way or another. For me, like going on a hike maybe meant walking with my friends down to Chinatown and getting some comic books and eating some roast pork buns, you know, five miles down Broadway. I guess I could tell you the difference between a maple and an oak because maple leaf was on the Canadian flag and there was a hockey team. That was about the depth of my botanical identification skills. I was interested in science as a kid up to a point. Dinosaurs and cheetahs and charismatic megafauna, all that was, of course, really cool. And then I started falling off from that and becoming more interested in the humanities. And I think one of the things that may have happened was, as a city kid, I just didn't have a connection. You know, I didn't really have any way of becoming more deeply involved with dinosaurs or with elephants. Meanwhile, going into my teenage years, 
there was just no new information, no new possibilities. And so I became much more interested in the humanities. And in a way, I think I got set up for a later in life nature connection because my wife, Rachel, and I, through happenstance, we ended up living in the country. We ended up living in this little cabin surrounded by about a thousand acres of woods in central New Jersey. It was like a whole new world to me. I couldn't believe, you know, walking through the woods and seeing a pileated woodpecker. What is that thing? And that sound and having a hawk swoop low over our cabin and just getting pulled into that world. Initially, paid a lot of attention to the birds and then the plants just really started calling to me. And I don't know exactly why, but I think it had something to do with the different ways I was able to relate to them. So with birds, you know, I could walk around with binoculars and kind of write their names down on this, chatter with them, listen to their songs. And that was that was a really great initial connection. It's what really bridged the gap for me. But with plants, there were all these fascinating threads. Just the beauty of coming out in the spring and seeing the first hepatica blooming. And, you know, we happen to live in a really biodiverse spot. And every time we take a little ramble through the woods, we'd find more and more plants. And some of these plants, in addition to being beautiful or creating interesting structure or being associated with an interesting habitat like a high ridge line or a vernal pond, some of these plants had this tantalizing other connection. I just completely fell for the plant world. And so no background to speak of, late transplant to New Jersey, very late bloomer in terms of nature awareness. But then it was like, there's this whole planet, the planet that I live on, that I was only vaguely aware of. The complexity of the local natural world, its beauty, its human connections just really spoke to me. In your book, Wild Plant Culture, A Guide to Restoring Edible and medicinal nature plant communities, you talk about ecological restoration. When did you first become interested in ecological restoration, and what is it exactly? One of the things about becoming aware of nature in a place like New Jersey is at least for me and probably for many other people, you also become quickly aware of the extent to which places that you're visiting and observing are maybe less than what they could be, often because of prior land use history and different influences of the way that we've reshaped the local landscapes through development and our changing relationship with the rest of the natural world. And I think there's this dawning awareness that even within areas with the exact same climate and the exact same soils and maybe the same aspect and all those kind of classical ecological factors being the same, you still have widely differing levels of quality and biodiversity. And it extended throughout the different species groups that you might pay attention to. So whether you were looking for pollinators, looking for butterflies, you're looking for plant diversity, maybe you're looking for forest herbs, or you're paying attention to where was the scarlet tanager hanging out or where was the pileated woodpecker. Through all these different clues and indicators, it was clear that some places were messed up. 
some places you walk through and hear the same story again and again in your mind. It's invaded. It's covered in Japanese silk grass. The beer browse everywhere. And other places, it was like, this is the same pretty much everything, but look at the quality here. And so I think the germs of the ecological restoration idea for me came out of wanting to see that beauty and diversity extend to these damaged landscapes. It's this desire to not walk through the woods and tell the same story again and again with all these kind of sad and depressing influences. The idea that maybe if we can go to these beautiful remnant places and really observe and use our human capacity, use that to really pay attention and then recreate and also think about what's wrong with these damaged areas, maybe there's a chance that we can heal some of these places. Some might say that we have a moral duty to fixing them. Can we talk about the difference between preservation and restoration, especially when it comes to the Northeast? That's a good question. You know, I think when somebody gets injured, let's say, you know, you break your leg, I think our first impulse is to immobilize it, put a cast on it, protect it, make sure that it doesn't get injured anymore, right? Then at a certain point, there needs to be a phase where we're taking the cast off. Maybe there's physical therapy. Maybe there's other type of therapies that are supportive of healing. I don't know if it's just a generational thing. When I happen to arrive into the sort of ecological community here, but I think we're getting to the point where we realize that just putting a wall or property ownership around a place isn't enough. And this is not how everybody on earth relates to the natural world. I think that there are emerging, tantalizing, and more and more concrete awareness that many different cultures, and I think we could shorthand this and say indigenous cultures, had other ways of participating in their native ecology, ways of creating or working hand in hand with the biota of their area to actually augment diversity and create beauty and create abundance and create structure. And even areas that we think of as like paragons of or archetypes of, kind of virginal wilderness, like the Amazon, there's more and more cultural ecology and archaeology coming out of these areas that point to a profound human influence on the diversity and distribution of species in those areas. Or if we think of the beautiful, vast American prairies, we're more and more aware that this is sort of a relationship between human beings and grasses and fire and bison that are shaping these areas. And without the human element, these places would be very different. I think that a lot of our ideas about ecological restoration are coming out of the Midwest, coming out of the prairie, coming out of the disappearance of this glorious biome. So maybe here in the Northeast, you know, we have generally really abundant rainfall, pretty fertile soils. You leave an area for 30, 40 years, you can get trees in there that for a layperson, they look big. It's pretty easy in this area to say, well, you know, everything goes back to forest and forests all kind of look the same. And this is healthy and all we need to do is preserve it. 
it takes a little bit deeper attention to place to realize that these young forests, they hardly qualify as forests when you compare them to the complexity found in some of our older remnant forests. Why was ecological restoration maybe germinating in the Midwest and a little bit less here? Maybe it has to do with how quickly things seem to regenerate towards forest here and seem to be healthy. By the time I started becoming interested in these things, I think the shift was already happening. I think people became very interested in native plants. A book that I read that was very influential to me, it's a one future forest by Leslie Sauer. And I basically read that book, put it down and said, okay, I know what I want to do with my life. You know, that book was very moving to me. That was early on. And that was pretty much one and only ecological restoration manual for the Northeast. So those ideas came to me early. So much seems to be changing in the last decade or so. And now there's so much sophistication in terms of the restoration approaches people are utilizing. A lot of the county park systems that never had stewardship staff before have stewardship staff. Same with the land trusts and so on. And I think that there's this really strong movement towards realizing that simply the idea of leave it alone, take only photographs, just preserve the land, buy it up and set it into preservation for perpetuity is not enough to guarantee the things that we really treasure about wild landscapes. Who is your book directed towards? And is it more regional than national? When I wrote the book, I tried to infuse it with stories. The stories in the book, they're really local. You know, they're related to my ecological restoration practice, my field botany experience, largely in New Jersey, and then travels throughout the region. And so it's rooted in this kind of hyper-local experience of one person, really, exploring local ecology. But it's also talking about ideas that have wider ramifications. So ideas about restoration and our relationship to the wild world and also plant communities and plant species that are very wide ranging. You know, some of them range from Canada all the way down into Mexico. It's going to be pertinent for people, especially east of the Mississippi, in terms of the plant communities and associations and species. And then hopefully well beyond that in terms of the ecological restoration practices that I talked about and the ways of understanding the land and the ways of reading the landscape. So those ideas about restoration practice, about analyzing the landscape, about thinking what plants associate together in communities, those have a wider reach. What I tried not to do in the book was overgeneralize everything so we lost the sort of beautiful specificity of local ecology. When I talk about plant communities, I try to root them in actual places where I've traveled and where I've worked. But I also try to reach further by talking about ideas about land management practices and, and what does it mean for us you know, with our very fraught relationship with the natural world right now to have this opportunity to have a different kind of relationship with plants. You know, not just one where we think about ourselves as destroyers of habitat, but maybe where we think ourselves as healers, as observers, as restorers. When and how did we lose the culture of wild plants? And why is it so important that we restore it? 
That's an interesting question, and and I think a tough one because when we say words like we, who are we talking about? I can only sort of seek to answer that question from my own subjective experience and who I think of as we. But one thing that I'll say right off the bat is we are working on this young art and science that we're calling ecological restoration. And we're working on these ideas about healing land, whether you're a progressive farmer, a native plant gardener, a permaculture practitioner. Some people are doing regenerative healing restoration work in their backyard. The one thing I would say about this young art of ecological restoration is it is both young and old. And if we pay attention to what indigenous people have been doing on this continent for a very, very long time, we see similar ideas about land management. We see practices that we would call ecological land management or that we might call something like permaculture. There's a deep heritage of land management on this continent. And I think a lot of times we don't think about that. And the other thing I would say about that deep heritage of indigenous land management is always profoundly intertwined with cultural plant species. The tending of edible plants, the tending of medicinal plant species, the harvesting and care of plant species that were used for craft or used for building or used for fabric and fiber and so on. And we don't talk that much about that human connection. We don't talk about the cultural connection. Doesn't it make sense as we're developing this younger art of land management to look to the tradition and heritage that we already have on this continent and to think about that really primal, fundamental relationship that we have with plants, which is that we can eat them. Our relationship with plants, probably even our abilities to identify plants, have always been intertwined with the fact that we can eat them and use them as medicine, make baskets or clothing out of them. We need some kind of deeper heart connection, and it can't just be science, and it can't just be depressing statistics about biodiversity decline. That's not going to bring people back into deeper relationship with the plant world. It's more like the excitement and possibility that comes out of maybe harvesting, and then asking ourselves a question like, okay, you know, if I'm just removing the foliage or the fruit or maybe even the roots of this wild being, what can I offer back? And I think that question, what can I offer back, that's really at the center of ecological restoration for me. Can we talk about the work that you are doing and where you focus your efforts? I do a bunch of different things related to wild plants. So my wife, Rachel, and I have a native plant nursery called Wild Ridge Plants. Probably the primary public-facing aspect of what we do is selling native plants to the general public. So we collect all of our seed in local wild areas. We propagate everything ourselves. We don't buy anything in. And that's a really exciting part of the process for me. The other thing that I do is I work as a field botanist. I largely work in larger natural areas for county, government, parks, nonprofits, and sometimes for private landowners. My role really is to pay attention to the plants in a place and what they're communicating. What are they communicating by their diversity, by their abundance, 
make that list of what species is there, but also think about what those plants are saying about quality or restoration potential or degradation and communicate that to the property owners who almost always are engaged in land management in some ways. Think of my role as supporting stewardship of these wild areas and communicating what happened here before, what are the best areas, how can we be strategic about restoration actions, what might some of those restoration actions be that can subtly tilt the trajectory of these places towards more diversity or if there's rare plant species, and writing that in a narrative way where I'm kind of translating what I'm seeing in the field and translating these plant lists into a story. You know, what are the plants saying by their presence and absence? The role that I most often fall into is in interpretation of wild plant communities and communicating ideas about management and strategies for tending or enhancing the biodiversity of these places. I like talking and thinking about plants. I like learning about other people's projects. Don't be shy about getting in touch. You can find me on Instagram at wildplantculture and also wildplantculture.com. You can find us and our plants and our botanical surveys at Wild Ridge Plants. You can get in touch with me at jared, J-A-R-E-D, at wildridgeplants.com. And if you happen to like dark, intense, evocative, punk-based rock and roll, you can look for my band, Hollow Howl, and I would just get a kick out of that. Native plants have become a large part of our ecological vocabulary. And with that, some confusion. How do you define the term native plants? Native plants, to me, are plants that exist in relationship. And it's only when we start considering not just that individual and what does it look like, but what are its relationships with other wildlife? What are our relationships with soil mycorrhizae? What is its relationship and its adaptation to aspects of the climate here that we begin to see plants as enmeshed in these much wider associations? I think shorthand for the idea that plants are engaged in these deep relationships is to say something is a native plant. By and large, if something is quote-unquote native, it's going to have these relationships. And if something came from another continent, no fault of its own, but it has great relationships back home. But it doesn't have those relationships here. If we're trying to restore, if we're trying to heal ecology, does it make sense to use that with building blocks that are in this weird way isolated because they're transplants? To me, native plant code for something with these deep evolutionary ancestral relationships to many of the other beings around it, whether it's the other plant people or whether it's the pollinators or whether it's even the rocks and the geology that they prefer to live on. For someone who wants to look into doing some restoration, how does one learn about what their landscape may have looked like before the European settlers arrived here? I wish I had a good answer for that question. I think that we're all assembling clues and coming to our own conclusions about what those clues mean. Hopefully, there's some convergence, put all of our ideas together about what that means. And what is the significance, really, of 
reassembling a landscape from, let's say, 500 years ago. There's a great book called Reading the Forested Landscape by Tom Wessels that's specific to New England that talks a lot about how you can go into the field and kind of read the signatures of prior land use. Maybe there's not one really good answer about this is what forests are supposed to look like. This is what it was like before Europeans came, messed everything up. But more like here's a spectrum of possibilities that is not immediately apparent if all you do is look at what we have right now. And that by engaging your historical imagination, by reading some historical documents, maybe by visiting an old growth forest down in the Smokies, you get these tantalizing alternative visions about what habitats could be like. And then maybe if you find like just a little trace of that somewhere and you find a couple rare plant species in there, it's like, oh, maybe this is why these plants are diminishing in the landscape because they no longer have the sort of structure that they call home. And so that all, I think, goes into our ecological restoration palette. Oh, what would it be like if we reintroduced fire in that landscape? Would we have more grasses and sedges in the understory of our oak forests instead of just leaf litter? So I find asking these historical questions to be really interesting, and I'm not sure that they all lead to one point or lead to one answer. How is restoration different in the Northeast? And does its diversity make it more difficult than, let's say, the Midwest or the prairie? I think you're hitting on something really important, actually. You know, somebody who's got a backyard or a front yard or sort of a suburban house. Many of our popular landscaping prescriptions are totally cookie cutter. You got some shade, put down some, I don't know, pachysandra or English ivy. It's evergreen ground cover. It's going to cover everything, and you're done. Or what should I put in my yard? And it's not actually an easy question because if what you're trying to do is more than just gardening, meaning it's more than putting something there and then tending to its every need in perpetuity, but it's actually putting, like, the right plant in the right place so that it will thrive and maybe move around on its own. There's not a cookie cutter answer like, here's the 10 native plant species that everybody should put in their yard. Because if we're really paying attention to soil and drainage and sunlight exposure, those are gonna be really different answers. And so on the one hand, I think people are really turned off by complex answers. Nobody wants to hear a long dissertation when they ask the nursery, what kind of ground cover should I put under my tree? But on the other hand, to look at it the other way, this makes working with native plants so much more interesting than slapping some pack of sander down like minor siding. So it has a depth and a complexity to it that I think appeals to people's curiosity, appeals to their artistry. And this is kind of really cool challenge. Can we work in tandem with these wild, undomesticated beings to create something real, to embody these relationships, to make something beautiful and complex that is maybe not entirely under the guidance of our own artifice? You know, it's like, I put these plants here, but then how it turned out five years later might be very different from that initial garden that you created. That's the reward of doing something more complex than... Um, maybe having that easy answer. Is it a problem that there's so much diversity inherent in our eastern landscapes? And yeah, on the one hand, it's an uphill battle, but I think once people get into it, 
they got really into it because they start seeing, oh, I have all these butterflies that I never had before. Or, yeah, maybe I took a hike along the road and I saw something that I planted on the roadside and I realized well, that was a special little spot. Again, the potential, the potential for connections, the potential for deeper learning and drawing closer to nature. I think that's the reward that we get out of that initially maybe confusing complexity that can also be a turnoff or be problematic. You say in the book that we have a chance to reimagine our place in nature. What might that look like? We've talked about some aspects of restoration or the ecological connection already. There are so many others. Analyze some of our sort of supermarket domesticates relative to the vitamin, mineral, antioxidant content found in many of these wild foods. The wild foods are off the charts in terms of their nutritional value. And you think, how healthy must humans have been when they ate a diet that was primarily comprised of these wild plant species that still had all of their phytochemistry intact? If we're able to augment our supermarket diets with seasonal, bioregional, wild plant foods from restored landscapes, that could mean a profound difference for just our health as individuals and our connection to those plants. What would a more ecological food system look like? So again, these highly nutritive plants, highly nutritive foods, what role do they play as we move forward into more regenerative and ecologically sensitive farming? For anyone who is thinking of restoring their landscape, how would you recommend they start the process of restoration? In ecological restoration, we have this idea that I really love, and it's called the reference ecosystem. It's this idea that you can go out to a natural place and find a fully realized and diverse and beautiful community, and then take what you observe about that and translate that onto your restoration site. Going out into the natural world and teaching yourself how to become a better observer is the foundation for ecological restoration. What's my local nature preserve? What's my local parks? A lot of times these places have naturalist staff who are happy to help you out and get you started. Oh, here's a really nice place to go for a hike. Or maybe you have a local native plant society or some other conservation group, and you can just ask, what's a really nice marsh or swamp nearby me? And go in with, you know, your eyes wide open and go in and touch things and smell things and then come back with ideas about, I saw this place and I wonder if I could do this in my yard or at my farm or at my restoration project. We don't know yet what the limitations are. We don't necessarily know what the order of assembly is. And we need everybody out there kind of experimenting and generating ideas. And I think the best way to do that in an original sense isn't necessarily just to look at somebody else's list, but to go out and be an observer yourself. That we kind of need everybody to have their heartstrings pulled at by some aspect of ecology and kind of work on that. We think we're at this exciting point where we can all contribute to ideas around healing plant communities and all contribute to ecological restoration because there is 
so much kind of micro diversity between landscapes and one person's yard isn't the same as another. And so if we're all working on this together and figuring out ways to share information, we can get at that complexity together. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jerry Rosenbaum and that you get a chance to read his wonderful book, Wild Plant Culture, and visit his website, wildplantculture.com, to learn more about the work that he is doing. Nature Revisited would like to thank Prairie Restorations for sponsoring this episode and that you visit them at their website for all your restoration needs. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share with friends, family, and colleagues. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Or on our website, nordenproductions.com. That's Norden, N-O-O-R-D-E-N Productions. The music for this episode is Nothing But Flowers by The Talking Heads. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Orden and Charles Gagan. And I hope you will join me for the next edition of Nature Revisited. And in the meantime, remember, we are nature. <laughs>